The Sixth Mansion, Chapter 5 of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila. This is a Discerning Hearts recording, read by Chris McGregor. The Interior Castle or the Mansions, translated by the Benedictines of Stanbrook. There is another form of rapture, which, though essentially the same as the last, yet produces a very different feelings in the soul. I call it the flight of the spirit, for the soul suddenly feels so rapid a sense of motion that the spirit appears to hurry it away with a speed which is very alarming, especially at first. Therefore, I said that the soul on whom God bestows this favor requires strong courage, besides great faith, trust, and resignation, so that God may do what he chooses with it. Do you suppose a person in perfect possession of her senses feels but little dismay at her soul's being drawn above her, while sometimes, as we read, even the body rises with it? She does not know where the spirit is going, who is raising her, nor how it happens, for at the first instant of this sudden movement, one does not feel sure it is caused by God. Can it possibly be resisted? No. Resistance only accelerates the motion, as someone told me. God now appears to be teaching the soul, which has so often placed itself absolutely in his hands and offered itself entirely to him, that it no longer belongs to itself. Thus it is snatched away more vehemently in consequence of its opposition. Therefore this person resolved to resist no more than does a straw when attracted by amber, a thing you may have seen. She yielded herself into the hands of him who was almighty, seeing it is best to make a virtue of necessity. Speaking of straw, doubtless it is easy for a stalwart, strapping fellow to lift a straw, as for our mighty and powerful giant to elevate our spirit. It seems that the cistern of water of which I spoke, but I cannot quite remember where, in the fourth mansion, was firmly filled gently and quietly, without any movement. But now, this great God who restrains the springs and the waters and will not permit the ocean to transgress its bounds, lets loose the streams, which with a powerful rush flow into the cistern, and a mighty wave rises, strong enough to uplift on high the little vessel of our soul. Neither the ship herself nor her pilot and sailors can at their choice control the fury of the sea and stop its carrying the boat where it will. Far less can the interior of the soul now stay where it chooses or force its senses or faculties to act more than he who holds them in his dominion decrees. As for the exterior powers, they are here quite useless. Indeed, I am amazed, sisters, while merely writing of this manifestation of the immense power of this great king and monarch than what must be felt by those who actually experience it. I am convinced that if his majesty were to reveal himself thus to the greatest sinners on earth, they would never dare to offend him again, if not through love, at least through fear of him. What obligations bind those taught in so sublime a manner to strive with all their might not to displease such a master? In his name, I beg of you, sisters, who have received these warlike favors, not to rest content with merely receiving them, but to remember that she who owes much has much to pay. 
This thought terrifies the soul exceedingly. Unless the great courage needed was given to it by our Lord, it would suffer great and constant grief. For looking first at what his majesty has done for it, and then upon itself, it sees how little good it has performed compared with what it was bound to do, and that the paltry service it has rendered was full of faults, failures, and tepidity. To efface the remembrance of the many imperfections of all its good deeds, if indeed it has ever performed any, it thinks best to forget them altogether, and to be ever mindful of its sins, casting itself on the mercy of God, since it cannot repay its debt to him, and begging for the pity and compassion he ever shows to sinners. Perhaps he will answer as he did to someone who was kneeling before a crucifix in great affliction on this account, for she felt she had never had anything to offer God or to sacrifice for his sake. The crucified one consoled her by saying that he gave her for herself all the pains and labors he had borne in his passion, that she might offer them as her own to his father. I learned from her that she at once felt comforted and enriched by these words, which she never forgets, but recalls whenever she realizes her own wretchedness and feels encouraged and consoled. I could relate several other instances of the same kind learnt in conversation with many holy people much given to prayer, but I will not recount them lest you might imagine they relate to myself. I think this example is very instructive. It shows that we please our Lord by self-knowledge, by the constant recollection of our poverty and miseries, and by realizing that we possess nothing but what we have received from Him. Therefore, courage is needed, sisters, in order to receive this and many other favors which come to a soul elevated to this state by our Lord. I think that if the soul is humble, it requires more valor than ever for this last mercy. May God grant us humility for his name's sake. To return to the sudden rapture of the spirit, the soul really appears to have quitted the body, which, however, is not lifeless, and though, on the other hand, the person is certainly not dead, yet she herself cannot, for a few seconds, tell whether her spirit remains within her body or not. She feels that she has been wholly transported into another and a very different region from that in which we live, where a light so unearthly is shown that if during her whole lifetime she had been trying to picture it and the wonder seen, she could not possibly have succeeded. In an instant her mind learned so many things at once that if the imagination and intellect spent years in striving to enumerate them, it could not recall a thousandth part of them. This vision is not intellectual, but imaginary, and is seen by the eyes of the soul more clearly than earthly things are seen by our bodily eyes. Although no words are pronounced, the Spirit is taught many truths. For instance, if it beholds any of the saints, it knows them at once as well as if intimately acquainted with them for years. Occasionally, besides what the eyes of the soul perceive in intellectual vision, other things are shown it. In imaginary vision, it usually sees our Lord accompanied by a host of angels. Yet neither the bodily eyes nor the eyes of the soul see anything. 
for these visions and many other things impossible to describe are revealed by some wonderful intuition that I cannot explain. Perhaps those who have experienced his favor and possesses more ability than myself may be able to describe it, although it seems to me a most difficult task. I cannot tell whether the soul dwells in the body meanwhile or not. I would neither affirm that it does nor that the body is deprived of it. I have often thought that as, though the sun does not leave his place in the heavens, yet his rays have power to reach the earth instantaneously, so the soul and the spirit, which make one and the same thing, like the sun and its rays, may, while remaining in its own place, through the strength of the ardor coming to it from the true sun of justice, send up some higher power above itself. In fact, I do not understand what I'm talking about, but the truth is that, with the swiftness of a bullet fired from a gun, an upward flight takes place in the interior of the soul. I know no other name for it but flight. Although noiseless, it is too manifest a movement to be an illusion, and the soul is quite outside itself. At least, that is the impression made upon it. Great mysteries are revealed to it, meanwhile, and when the person returns to consciousness, she is so greatly benefited that she holds all this world's goods as filth compared with what she has seen. Henceforth, earthly life is grievous to her, and what used to please her now remains uncared for and unnoticed. Those children of Israel who were sent on first to the land of promise brought back tokens from it. So here our Lord seems to seek to show the soul something of the land to which it is traveling, to give it courage to pass through the trials of its painful journey now that it knows where it must go to find rest. You may fancy that such profit could not thus quickly be obtained, yet only those who have experienced what signal benefits this favor leaves in the soul can realize its value. This clearly shows it to be no work of the devil, neither the imagination or the evil one could represent what leaves such peace, calm, and good fruits in the soul, and particularly the following three graces of a very high order. The first of these is the perception of the greatness of God, which becomes clearer to us as we witness more of it. Secondly, we gain self-knowledge and humility from seeing how creatures so base as ourselves in comparison with the creator of such wonders have dared to offend him in the past or venture to gaze on him now. The third grace is a contempt for all earthly things unless they are consecrated to the service of so great a God. With such jewels, the bridegroom begins to deck his bride. They are too valuable for her to keep them carelessly. These visions are so deeply engraved in her memory that I believe she can never forget them until she enjoys them forevermore. For to do so would be the greatest misfortune. But the spouse who gave her these gifts has power to give her grace not to lose them. I told you that courage was required by the soul, for I do think it is a trifling matter for the spirit to feel literally separated from the body as it does when perceiving that it is losing its senses without understanding the reason. There is need that he who gives all the rest should include fortitude. You will say that this fright is well rewarded, and so say I. May he who can bestow such graces be forever praised 
and may his majesty vouchsafe that we may be worthy to serve him. Amen. <laughs>